Many people believe medicine is grounded in benevolence, that is, wishing good. It's more than that. The target principle of medicine must be a higher standard, beneficence, doing good. This breeds trust between my patient and me, which is the cornerstone of my art and practice. In return for her trust, I promise always to try to help her and never harm her. Every time I step into the hospital, I remind myself of the enormity of this promise, this covenant. Early in my career, I strayed, not intentionally, but out of a desire to control every medical circumstance, I didn't listen well enough. Our greatest treasure is found in deep, real communication with each other. When this is nurtured, especially in times of suffering, two people can establish something of almost mystical quality, a reciprocal connection that brings us to a place of charity and empathy that crosses cultural, social, and racial boundaries. Without such communication, we remain miles apart. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in today. As always, if you like what we're doing and you want to support us, you can leave us an honest review and rating on Apple Podcasts. You can also engage with us on Instagram and Twitter, And now you can even donate to us on Patreon. All funds go towards improving our podcast and bringing you more value from our show. Today we have Dr. Wes Ely. He's the Grant W. Little Chair in Medicine, Professor of Medicine in the Division of Allergy, Pulmonary, and Critical Care Medicine, and the co-director of the Critical Illness, Brain Dysfunction, and Survivorship Center, so-called the SIB Center, at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. He's also a practicing interventionist with a focus on geriatric ICU care. Dr. Ely's research has focused on improving the care and outcomes of critically ill patients with ICU-acquired brain disease. His team developed the primary tool by which delirium is measured in the ICU-based trials and clinically at the bedside in ICUs worldwide. Dr. Ely has over 400 peer-reviewed publications and recently published a highly acclaimed book titled Every Deep Drawn Breath. All net proceeds from his book are going to support patients and their families, and so we highly recommend this book. It's a great read, and we talk a little bit about it today. We hope you like these portions of the show. Despite his many accomplishments, he'll be the first to say that his most amazing accomplishments are his three daughters, Taylor and the twins, Blair and Brooke. Please welcome Dr. Wes Ely to the show and welcome to Leading the Rounds. Hey, everybody, and welcome to today's episode of Leading the Rounds, where we are so privileged to have Dr. Wes Ely on the show. Dr. Wes Ely is the author of a new book, Every Deep Drawn Breath, which I had a phenomenal time reading, enjoyed every page of it. But before we get into this, Peter, how are you doing today? I am stressed. (laughs) (laughs) Lab, Lab work has been quite a lot lately, but you know, I'm always looking forward to a good podcast and I find my work quite um, satisfying, but it is stressful, a lot of responsibility, but you know, just trying to rise to the occasion. Hanging in there. Dr. Ely, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Caleb and Peter, and thank you for having me on tonight. It's a, it's a pleasure. And the fact that medical students and trainees are listening makes this all the more fun for me and a privilege. Awesome. So we wanted to start out the conversation just asking you to describe how you started and in getting involved in clinical research. There's lots of different avenues you can go into in medicine. And so what drew you to research and specifically clinical in the hospital? 
Sure. You know, when I was uh, in, in college at Tulane in, in University in New Orleans and decided to go into medicine, my goal was to try and help people that I'd never meet. And as a young boy, I worked on the farm in Louisiana and a lot of pickers that I worked with really lost their voice. They didn't have a voice because their life circumstances, you know, silenced them in many ways, kind of as a form of testimonial injustice. As a medical student, also at Tulane in New Orleans and going to Charity Hospital, I saw all the, all these really disadvantaged people. And I thought about all the privilege that I had and how could I give back in a way that would help the largest number of people. And while I wanted to be, and still am a clinician, I'm at the bedside in the intensive care unit as a COVID doctor, for sure, I knew that my clinical acumen coupled with doing large-scale clinical trials and publishing articles in journals like the New England Journal of Medicine, JAMA, or Lancet could have a broader reach. And so my goal of improving the lives of people I'd never meet was really met through patient-oriented clinical research trials and cohort studies. I think you touched on something that not a lot of people um, appreciate about physician scientists or clinician scientists is that we really do understand the privilege that it is to work with patient samples and this the sheer generosity that patients have. And I, I bet that you feel this every day as the director of the SIBs, the SIBs or the KIBs. How do you pronounce that? Uh, we call it SIB center. It's, it's CIBS, which stands for critical illness, brain dysfunction and survivorship. And that's a center here at Vanderbilt university at Na in Nashville, Tennessee, and at the VA. I'm a, I'm a VA doctor as well, and I think it's amazing to get to serve the veterans. But we have about 120 people in our research center, about $35 million in NIH and VA funding. And we all think it's a total gift, priceless gift beyond measure that patients give us their time, their energy, they give us their blood. Mm -hmm. And now we're doing cohort study called brain Two, funded by the national institute of aging where they're giving us their brains when they die and you know you just can't put a price on this sort of gift for people their, their generosity knows no boundaries and so yes i i believe that i am there to give back to patients to make me future of medicine brighter with with a reduction of human suffering and the only way to get there is by the incredible beauty of the gift of, of these patients who enroll in our trials and cohort studies. I couldn't have said it better myself. And so you said in your book that everyone should be living on the edge of mystery. And so as, as the director of the SIB Center, is that your way of living on the edge of mystery? And how else do you spark your curiosity? Yeah, I love living on the edge of mystery. And so I have a personal rule for myself as a, as a clinical investigator that I only do studies that meet two rules. One of them is study what you have a lot of. And the other one is either answer matters. And so when I go and design a clinical trial, like we just recently, I just recently designed a trial in, in COVID where we enrolled 1,500 patients from about over a hundred medical centers in, in double digit countries around the world to determine if a drug would reduce death rates in COVID. Either answer mattered because we needed to know if JAK inhibitors would improve survival in COVID on top of steroids. And we also studied what we had a lot of because we had we were in the midst of a COVID surge. So when studies meet both of these rules, 
I want to design a trial that will explore the boundaries of mystery of what we know in medicine. And then in getting the answer, I always think of it like it's a huge present. And I love getting these answers to these questions so that we can then take them forward and put them into clinical medicine and improve care. And as I said earlier, reduce suffering. I imagine coming up with clinical questions is challenging, but then I also imagine organizing and leading a team as large as the SIBs is also a challenge. Peter was doing some research and he said you guys have around 90 investigators. So how do you coordinate and lead that team effectively? I love that question. You know, the most challenging thing about being a leader of a large research institute like the SIB Center is maintaining that human connection with each of the people in the center. So for example, today in our team meeting, I invited a doctor from London who has long COVID to be part of our team meeting. Her name is Dr. Nizreen Alwan. She's pretty famous right now on Twitter as an activist for long COVID. Anyway, she came on, we talked with her. She taught us all about her own story with long COVID. And as she was teaching us, I noticed there was somebody that I actually didn't know. And later on that day in our biostatisticals meeting, she was there. And so she was the new statistician we'd hired. But because of COVID, I hadn't had a chance to meet her. So as soon as I got off the biostats meeting, I emailed her and said, can you and I have lunch tomorrow? I want to get to know who you are. What's your story? What brought you to the SIB Center as one of our new biostatisticians? We have multiple. And that's the sort of thing that I take very seriously as one of the co-directors of the SIB Center or or just a, a leader of clinical medicine in general and research is that it's all about the human story and the human connection. And it's not just words on paper or math problems or computer analyses. The humans are discovering about humans. So can you confidently say now you know everybody in the Zip Center? Oh, yes, I do. <laughs> I know everybody. And I've met with all of them one-on-one. And we constantly, <laughs> last week, we all got together and had a, a picnic. And we try and do things that bring us together, even during pandemic times, socially distanced, of course, outdoors and all that business. Um, but, but, you know, it, it is very challenging. And I, to, be, to get to become a better researcher, I actually read outside my field, which I think is important. As it was at one point when when our research group was growing really exponentially and I couldn't keep up, I went and read the book Good to Great, which is about good companies becoming great companies. And that had a ton of lessons in it for me about how to take us from a good research operation to a great research operation. I also read Malcolm Gladwell's book, The Tipping Point. And, you know, he says in there, you've got to have mavens who are experts. Uh, connectors and um, and salespeople, and so I made sure that we stocked our SIP center with mavens, salespeople, and connectors, so that we could grow at a rate that would uh, accommodate. And another tip I took out of the out of the Good to Great book was be very careful who you get on the bus, because once you get somebody on the bus, it might be difficult to get them off the bus. So we're extremely cautious about who we bring into our center and make sure that they are motivated for the right reasons, which is not about money. It's not about fame or power. This is about human service. And what I really feel like we have when we all get together is we have a love of that path of discovery. And uh, so I think that's what keeps us grounded. You mentioned that you built your team around 
and included the salespeople. And so Caleb had mentioned earlier that we one of the challenges of clinical medicine is asking the question. And then you, your response of either answer matters leads to the next question, which is how do you create buy-in that what you discovered is true and impactful to medicine? Yes, you see, some people think that the, doing the research is enough, but it's not. Because what's the point of doing the research if nobody takes it up and uses it in their life as a, as a physician, a nurse, or some other form of, of clinical service. So we have to design the study, find the patients, enroll them, conduct the investigation, analyze the data, publish it, and then go out and sell it. And you might think you're a scientist, you're not a salesperson, but as I said, Malcolm Gladwell, if you're going to tip something, if it's going to tip, you've got to go have a salesperson, a sales force. And one of my talents actually is that I love what I do so much that I am in, I, I, I'm invigorated to sell my ideas to other people and then have them challenge me. I want them to challenge me and I want to receive their challenges and say, oh gosh, you just pointed out something I never thought of before. Let me go back to the lab, which is my ICU or my clinical practice. Let me go back to the data and, and ask that question because I never asked that question that way before. And so I love getting constructive criticism, red ink, bring it on. And, um, and in so doing, people know that I'm not trying to force an idea on them, but rather that we're going to work together with these data to try and find the right path forward. One of the things that you talk about in your book, and I'm sure is one of the red ink that you just mentioned, is the idea of malignant normality. Can you talk for a minute about what that means and how that plays into what we're talking about here? Well, there's lots of different ways that people can use that term malignant normality. But in, um, in some ways, I think that what happens is that people go overboard in thinking that they know what is normal and what is good. And they, they are, are resistant to hearing something contrary to their own way of thinking. And that gets you in a dangerous place in medicine, because as you read, like the first patient story in the book was about cerebolic, and I knew I didn't have the tools to save her life. And then the second patient story is about Teresa Martin, and she was the first patient I ever had in the ICU where I did have the tools to save her life oh, through help from above, I believe. But when she got her life saved, she went out and had her whole life was destroyed by post-intensive care syndrome. And I thought, you know what? Critical care is doing harm. Like we're saving her life, but we're creating harm. And so if I had bought into this idea of malignant normality, I, I would have thought, well, that's one of the ways I look at it, is that I would have thought, you know, I'm going I'm to insist that I know the normal way, the best way, how to do it. And, 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 and I would not be open to criticism um, or to the ways that what I was doing was an injustice to other people. And, uh, you know, I, I, I don't want to be a part of that. I don't want to live that way. So you brought up the challenge of changing people's minds. What have been some of the successful ways that you, your team has been able to convince people? I know there's data, but data doesn't always convince people either, as we've seen with the pandemic and with other things going on. So what are some of the successful things that your team has done to get people to change their minds and adopt a new way of practice? I think what we've learned is that it's really about the power of story. So for example, 
When I started hypothesizing that we were over-sedating patients in the ICU, we went out and designed a randomized control trial that we published in Lancet that showed for the first time in all of critical care that when we cut sedation in half, people lived more often. There was actually a 15% reduction in death at one year, which was one of the largest mortality reductions in all of critical care literature. And yet, at the end of that trial, people didn't believe us. We went, and I tell this story, Pratik Pandurapani goes to Berlin. He's, a, he's green behind the gills as a young investigator. And they ate him alive and said they didn't believe the data. And they thought that they were already doing the right thing. And, you know, it took us another four or five years of just doing more investigations, more data, consistency of message to begin to convince investigators all over the world that what we had discovered was true and real. And we didn't, we weren't willing to give up because the stakes were too high. People's lives were at risk here. And it took us, we published those data in 2007, 2008. It wasn't in 2012 before we had built the ABCDEF bundle, which is a six step you know, safety bundle like you might use to fly a plane across the country. And uh, it wasn't until the early 2012 and then again until 2015 that we conducted quality improvement programs all over the country and then really got the buy-in from, from thousands and thousands of ICUs. One of my favorite Paul Calanthe quotes from When Breath Becomes Air is, human knowledge is never contained in one person. It grows from the relationships we create between each other and the world and is still never complete. And so as someone who's working at the interface of science, clinical medicine, and humanism, how have the relationships you've built driven some of your groundbreaking research, like what you just mentioned, or inspired some of the ideas to challenge the status quo? I love your relationships I've built with patients, but it's also important to realize that we build relationships as investigators. And I met, for example, just to tell you a story, I met a woman and a man um, who were in England who turned out to be some of the earliest pioneers, and their story is in the book, um, Dr. Christina Jones and Dr. Richard Griffiths, who were some of the earliest pioneers in the United Kingdom, who had figured out that mobility and support groups were ways of reducing the acquisition of muscle and nerve disease in the ICU and a way of finding healing on the back end of critical care. Well, those people became my friends. And in, the, in so doing, that friendship carried me forward to say, learning from them, how can I do the right sort of clinical trial? They had made observations, but they hadn't subjected what they were doing to large-scale clinical trials. And it was those friendships I built with these investigators that really allowed me to wade through the waters of this discovery path, this discovery ocean, if you will, to figure out the best way to, to get access answers that I knew the medical community would require if they were going to change the status quo. So you brought up the power of story in implementing your research and your clinical data. Is that one of the reasons why you chose to produce your story in book format? Yeah, every deep drawn breath, which I just call EDDB, but EDDB is a book of narrative nonfiction. It's not about me, really. I mean, there are some parts in it that I tell my story, but but it's really about patients and 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 the human beings that I learned from in the context of all this investigation over the last 25 years to change critical care. And I don't take credit for this. It, it was a part of many, many people getting together 
to learn from these patients, design these trials and move forward. But what I realized in, in, before I started writing EDDB was that if I could put it into a book that would captivate both scientists and non-medical people, then maybe there would be a way forward for people to all gather together around this road of recovery and healing. And today I'll tell you what happened to me, but, and you can see this on Twitter. I I've never been on Twitter, but now I'm, I'm on at Wes Ely MD. So it's just very simple at W E S E L Y M D. And I just tweeted out tonight, this very just heartrending message I got in an email form from a patient. She, she took a picture of herself. She was getting a continuous EEG. Her head was all wrapped up. And she sent me this email tonight, which you can get my email address off the internet. So she just went and found it of herself reading every deep drawn breath. And she wrote in there in the email, Dr. Ely, your words are going straight to my brain and then straight to my heart. And when I dreamed about why to write every deep drawn breath, ultimately my main dream was, could, could this be another way of reaching people who need to heal? And I, that's why that right there is the best message I could have ever gotten. That made the whole thing worth it, which is that one patient's picture that she sent to me. One of my favorite quotes in the book, uh, I, I believe you used a, maybe it's not Latin, but I think it's Latin quote before it to, to talk about exactly what you're saying right now. Um, but it, what you meant by it was every person is a world. Ah, and so- yes. Can you talk about that? I mean, that's that's exactly what we're talking about right now. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the expression actually is uh, cada persona es en mundo. So it's actually Spanish. Well, it's and, Spanish. Uh, okay. okay. It means each person is a world. That's fine. And uh, the, the Latin word that you want to know that goes along with this is equanimitas. And we'll come back to that in a moment. But cada persona es en mundo, I have it in a story about some people who just blew me away by the beauty of their own love for each other. They're, they're, it's right around a, uh, a situation where I'm trying to free up a man who was a prisoner and trying to get the shackles off of his leg to, to, to show his, him his dignity. And also where there's two patient, two couples who've both been married for over 65 years, the Hills and the Stevenses. And they, but all four of them get COVID. And it tells the story of how they get through their COVID. Um, and each person is a world. You know, this is what this is about, is that these people, the depths of who they are cannot be overestimated. It, and, and when I was sedating people in the ICU and couldn't look them in the eyes and talk to them and they were delirious, I was missing all of that. And that's what, what, what allowed me, what, what took me on that wrong path was an overuse of the asset of what Osler describes as equanimitas. And equanimitas means equanimity, it means even keel. And in Osler's original essay uh, in, in 1890, which was 100 years before I graduated from medical school, I think it was to the University of Pennsylvania medical students, he argues that we should keep ourselves removed enough and, and have that equanimity, that calmness, that even keel which is great advice, but I took it too far. And so I took a virtue and made it into an, a lot. I took an asset and made it into a liability for me and my patients. And once I realized that I was depriving them of, of the human connection that I needed to be giving them as a physician, 
I started to undo all that. And now I just dive all the way in with my patients because I don't want to, I don't want to serve them any other way. One of my favorite parts about reading narrative medicine and reading your book is this quote, every person is a world. Cause I feel like whether it's clinical research or any type of research, when you're thinking in a macro scale consistently, you lose the fact that the world is made out of people. And every time you're able to make an impact on one patient, you're able to change the world. And so that quote, I think, is, illustrates it so perfectly. I love that. Um, if you don't mind, uh, at the beginning of the book, I, I, I have the excerpt from John Steinbeck's East of Eden, which is where the title of the book comes from. And I just want to read it to you and tell you why I chose it. Is that okay? Yeah, of it course. Fits, it fits with what you're saying. This is from chapter 13 in East of Eden. Sometimes a kind of glory lights up the mind of a man. It happens to nearly everyone. You can feel it growing or preparing like a fuse burning towards dynamite. It's a feeling in the stomach, a delight of the nerves, of the forearms. The skin tastes the air, and every deep-drawn breath is sweet. Its beginning has the pleasure of a great stretching yawn. It flashes in the brain, and the whole world glows outside your eyes. The reason I chose that quote for every deep drawn breath is that 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 part of the book is really about 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 three things, humility, glory and wonder, humility. Everything in medicine is, is should be about humility. As soon as we get ego involved, we start missing that each person is a world thing. We think that we're big and that, and that they're small. It's the other way around. We're small and they're big. That's the person we're trying to serve. And then the glory is in the human being, is in the, the way the body works and, and the wonder of it all, and in the ability to serve as a physician, that other person. So that's really where the title of the book comes from. And I hope that that makes some sense to you and to your listeners. I think it brings everything into a nice context. And I have a couple of questions rattling around my mind, but I think I, I really love the way that you're putting humanism into a a very digestible set of verb, verbs that we can really understand and, and empathize with as we hear them come from you. And so I have to ask the other facet of life that people talk a lot about with regards to humanism is death. And so I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your experiences during the height of COVID, where you were doing a little bit more than sedating patients and what that was like for you and what was going through your mind as many, many people were, you know, dying on in your ICU. If you mind, if you don't mind, I don't know that could be a very tough and personal. No, question. absolutely. It, it, I think that healthcare professionals, doctors, nurses, pharmacists, social workers, chaplains, respiratory therapists, PTs, OTs, all of us have just been through something so brutal. And it's not just that the disease was scary or that it was three times longer than usual sepsis. You know, instead of a six day course, it's a, it's a 20 day course. But it's also that we didn't have the right balance of humanism at the bedside because we weren't there looking in the eyes of our patients and holding their hands because we were outside the room too much. And a medical student that I had told me what, after he, his patient died the night before, he said, you know, I never touched my patient until I was pronouncing them dead. And he said, how am I ever going to be a good doctor? And he was crying. And the addition to that, when the family's not there, it's it's not it's anti-medicine. It's a it's a, it's it's opposed to everything that we really should be doing in terms of the healing arts. 
And I know in, at the beginning why we did it, because we were afraid and we didn't have PPE. But I wrote a piece that was in the Washington Post about family visitation. I wrote it with Dr. Rena Audish, who is the author of In Shock. And we felt that this was a form of epistemic injustice. Episteme means knowledge. And we were holding knowledge back from the family and the patients by the way that we were operating. And, it, and we were treating family as a luxury. And the family's not a luxury. They're part of the healing plan. And that's why I like the story of Jimmy Johnson so much in the book, because, what, because it was a medical student, Philip Wilson, who had studied peace studies at Notre Dame. And he was devoted to the idea of, 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 of reducing injustice and, and inequity. And it was his idea that we should talk to the prison and get permission for Jimmy Johnson's sister, Johnny Blackwell, to be at the bedside with him. And when we finally got him unshackled and she was there with him at the bedside, you could see that he was fully a person again. A whole per It was whole person care. And that's what we were missing in COVID. In this new age of COVID and technology and changes, how do we not let that happen again? And how do we keep medicine human? I think what we have to do is we have to realize that it's not okay to put technology first. And, you know, what I did as a young intensivist before I had all this gray hair was that I just thought, you know what, my job is technology. I'm good at putting people on life support. I'm a good, they used to call me the intubator. Um, and, and that was what I thought my job was until patients taught me otherwise. And it's not even okay to think that my job is technology and touch. It's got to be the other way around. It's got to be touch and technology. So I have to start first with the human condition and start first with the realization that this is an entire person, body, mind, and spirit. And if I think it's my job just to take care of the matter, M-A-T-T-E-R, meaning just the physical body, that I am missing two thirds of that human being. And, and it's not even enough to take care of the mental as well too, the mental health, because each person is a spiritual being. And this is not to invoke religion. This is about spirituality and, and respecting the spiritual path of each individual that we come into contact with. That's why I talk about taking a spiritual history. Ms. Smith, are you, do you have a spiritual path you want me to know? Ms. Smith says, yes, I'm an atheist and I don't want to talk about God. Ms. Smith, that's why I asked you. I want to respect your wishes. There's a really moving story in every deep drawn breath about an atheist that I met who had widely metastatic cancer. We didn't know that. She came in with an acute abdomen. She goes to the OR. She gets um, op uh, exploratory lap and gets closed back up and comes to my unit. And she says, I don't believe in God or an afterlife, but I have this ritual I want to do with my family. So don't give me too much morphine. I want to be awake. And I'm even willing to have pain to go through this process. And she asked each person three times, do you love me? And the person would say in reply, you know that, yes, I love you, but, but do you love me? Yes, you know that I love you. Yes, yes, but do you love me? And in so doing, she went through this ritual with each of her family members. And then she turned to me and her, another doctor that was taking care of her. Um, and she did the same thing with us. We didn't deserve it. I still have no idea why she gave that gift to me, but she did. And I'll never, ever forget the depths of that gift to me. And that's how we never go back to the way it happened in COVID is by putting touch first, 
technology second and seeing the entire person. One of the things that I struggle with as a trainee, and I'm sure other people do, is when we're interacting with patients, a lot of the times we're so focused on doing all the right things that we need to remember, whether that's asking the right questions or doing the right physical exam maneuvers, that we become rushed because we're trying to remember all the things and we do forget to treat them as a human. And I imagine you had that in your training as well. You wanted to learn how to intubate so well and do your job so well that that's all you focused on. And so as a trainee, what are some things that we can do to maintain our humanity in medicine? I, I, I love the fact that you brought up the importance of, of the details of what we do in medicine. I mean, science is science. So we have to get that right. And the patient deserves for us to get that right. And it's not okay just to be warm and fuzzy and be a humanist and not be great at your science. So we got to bring both things to the table in order to serve the patient the way that they need to be served. Um, I love the, 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 the phrase, dig the grind, don't, six, don't skip steps. Um, it's Taylor from the New Orleans Saints. He, he says, dig the grind, don't skip steps. The grind is the everyday details of how we do it. And the don't skipping steps is like, reminds me of how I read a chest X-ray. Patient position, rotation, inspiration, foreign bodies, soft tissues, uh, bone soft tissues and lungs. Every single time, same order. EKG, rate, rhythm, axis. I mean, don't skip steps. And that, that keeps the patient safe, right? In addition to that, don't skip the step of looking in the patient's eyes holding their hand, kneeling down even at their bed so you can be eye level and asking them, instead of saying to them, here's what's the matter with you, saying, what matters to you? Switch that preposition. What matters to you? And when we ask that question, in addition to the grind and the, and the not skipping steps, when we ask that question, we will find our true north in medicine. And if we can maintain that one patient at a time, then we will not lose our way. Are you familiar with um, Dr. Ed Cregan? Yes. Tell me more. Yeah, we, Why had you a, we, had, we had him on our show last season, and he said basically the exact same thing. After he made the transition to palliative care, he was always focusing on the goals of the patient. But as someone myself who's working at the edge of technology, and I'm very much trying to be at that, that point where like I'm trying to use technology to my benefit, I wanted to get your perspective on a specific question that I had, which was with the rate that technology is progressing specifically like artificial intelligence, our ability to video chat. Um, has, has that challenged you in a way to maintain humanism or what, what challenges have you seen that others have faltered in that you might want to make us more aware of with the increasing prevalence and power that technology is bringing to the bedside? Let's use the technology in a way that serves everything we've just been discussing. So for example, at the bedside, we used to not be able to use technology to get in touch with families in, in another state or another country. Now, moving forward, that will be a new part of our entire treatment plan for the patients is that wherever your family is, we will put them in touch with you at the bedside. And that's a beautiful thing, okay? But don't let that take the place of the actual human touch either. So, you know, there's graded levels of engagement. Right now, we are doing something on the computer, which is an absolute gift to us, but it's not the same as if I was two feet away from you or six feet away for social distancing. Um, so I think we, we, it's a both and and not an either or. And I do think that as the technology continues to get better, 
we have to realize that it will never ever replace that human aspect of things the the touch of skin the temperature the the the, the sweat and, and all of those things that make us human they they can't be replaced by a screen well what a beautiful reminder of how to stay human in medicine one of the last questions that we always end our interviews with and I know from your book and from reading your work that you started reading very young. I mean, you mentioned at your mom's book club. Um, So we always like to end our interviews asking about books. We know you just wrote your book, but what other books would you suggest for medical trainees to read? I really do uh, love My Own Country by Abraham Bergisi. I think it's a very important book. And his second book, Tennis Partner, uh, was also a very important one about addiction. So those are two great ones. I mentioned Rena Oddish earlier in Shock. Uh, it's an absolutely beautiful story of her own life story, and uh, almost dying. Um, those are three right there. But I, I think that there, we need to get also into humanities. For example, uh, Wallace Stegner, um, Crossing to Safety, is about two young professors and their, and, and their wives who go through about 40 years of a relationship. That's an absolutely gorgeous book. And novels are, you know, I, I just, I, they send me. And so I think that we need to be, you know, I wrote in the book, I, I, I talked about Aerosmith in Every Deep Drawn Breath. And Aerosmith is a classic book by Sinclair Lewis. It's a long book, but it's a classic, classic book. And uh, when Saul Permute got his Lifetime Achievement Award, he said that the book Aerosmith changed his entire life as a physician. Um, I love that book. Uh, and it has been a, a, a longstanding part of my life as a physician. And I'll leave you with one more. You know, in, the, in Every Deep Drawn Breath, I, Maya Angelou makes multiple appearances. And her book, I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings, was something that woke me up early to the notion that people can be silenced and they need to be heard. And uh, her, that entire genre of, uh, of books that she, of all of her writing is beautiful. You know, her son, whom I spoke with and became friends with in writing Every Deep Drawn Breath, gave me a quote for, for the book that nobody ever had before. She wrote from the Black perspective and she aimed at the human heart. And I think if all of us can find books that give us perspective and are aimed at the human heart, it will make us better people and better physicians. And that's gonna enable us to serve other people better and reduce human suffering. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Ely, for speaking with us. This was an absolute pleasure. Peter, what did you think? I am stunned. I'm at a loss for words and I have a lot to meditate on the rest of the night. Thank you so much. Thank you both. I appreciate you very much. Thank you. So that's all for today. Thanks everyone so much for listening to this episode of Leading the Rounds. Hopefully you were able to learn something new and get a better perspective of how we can improve as leaders. If you like our content, please subscribe and follow We work to put out a new episode every other week. You can also contact us and connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at Leading the Rounds, 
or email us at leadingtherounds at gmail.com. See you next time on Leading the Rounds. Thank you.